All right. Welcome back uh, to RUF. I want to especially welcome you tonight. If this is your first uh, time to RUF, um, thanks for coming. I know you've got a lot of places and a lot of things that you could do with your Wednesday nights. And I want you to know that I'm glad that you're spending it with us. So I hope you feel like this is an inviting place and a welcoming place for you. And I hope you'll come back and see us. Also, I like to say at the beginning of the semester, uh, something about our music. For some of you, the music might be a little unfamiliar, and that is because we take old hymns in RUF and put them to new music. Now, that's not to say there's anything wrong with contemporary worship music or anything like that, but RUF has chosen to kind of do that, put, uh, take old hymns and rewrite them to new music. There's several reasons for that, but mainly it's because if you notice the lyrics, and just kind of, if you could look through your song sheet, you'll notice how rich the lyrics are to these old hymns, and we don't want them to be lost. Uh, some of these four, five hundred year uh, songs that are four or five hundred years old are such rich lyrics that speak such truth to our hearts. And so one of the things that's been said about hymns is they um, basically restore our sanity, meaning that they're so raw and real, and they speak truth about who God is and who we are, and when we come into these, uh, through those doors every Wednesday night, and we've had tough weeks, we're going through lots uh, in our own lives, we come in, and as we sing and hear uh, from God's word, our sanity is restored in a sense and that we are reminded what is true and what is real in the world. And so our hope is, is that as we sing these songs, that God would take those truths uh, of the songs that we find in Scripture and write them on our hearts and that we might actually live differently and be encouraged during our time here. So that's just a word about the music. Also, wanted to remind you about the spring conference. I cannot... Uh, say enough how crucial these times are for you and for our group. And so lots of community is built on conferences when you kind of go away. And it's also our spring conference is focused on service and less on, you know, speaking in kind of a traditional conference format. So we're going to have fun. We will learn. But then we're also going to kind of put down our own needs and serve someone that needs it uh, on Saturday afternoon. So please consider that, the 21st and 22nd. You'll be back in Oxford by 5 o'clock on Friday night, so it's a 24-hour deal, and it'll be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll consider that uh, at the end of February. If you have your Bible and you're not already there, turn with me to John chapter 2. Also, there's an outline printed for you on your announcement sheet. One of my favorite uh, shows, hopefully you're familiar with this, I'm sure there's some Office fans in the room. Any Office fans? Alright, good. Is the episode of Phyllis's wedding. You remember when Phyllis gets married and she wants six weeks off for her honeymoon. And she thinks that the only way that she's going to be able to get six weeks off is to have her boss, Michael Scott, in the wedding. And so she gives him the role of pushing her father, Albert, down the aisle. Michael Scott thinks this is like a huge deal and that he has somehow 
giving her away with her father. And so he pushes her, Albert down the aisle, and about halfway down, if you remember the episode, Albert gets up out of the wheelchair and walks her the rest of the way down. Michael Scott is furious and frustrated because he thinks that her father is stealing the show, which he should be. And he's upset, and he, in the middle of the vow, screams out and presents the couple as if he is officiating the wedding. And to make matters worse, they go to the reception, and he stands up, and he gives the most awkward toast ever at a reception, and totally, basically destroys Phyllis's wedding, so much so that they finally have to kick him out of the reception and not allow him to come back in. Michael Scott totally destroyed Phyllis's wedding and made it the most awkward thing ever. Well, tonight we see another wedding. And Jesus is at this wedding, but rather than making it awkward and destroying it, what we're going to see is that Jesus, the Son of God, actually comes and breathes life into it and becomes the life of the party. I think you'll see what I mean as we study our passage tonight. But before we dig in, let me pray and ask God to be with us and to help us. Father, we ask that you would come and be with us tonight. We need your help. We need your spirit. And we pray that you would convince us that we are actually a bigger mess than we realize. But hallelujah, you are a greater savior than we could ever have imagined. Father, convince us of those things tonight. Also convince us in our hearts that in you there really is life. Um, There really is everlasting and substantial joy. We would be grateful if you would do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Are y'all hearing any feedback at all? Okay, is it just me? Maybe if I can scoot this back a second. Okay, I still hear it, but that's okay. Um, If you remember last week, if you were here, we learned something about the book of John. And we really focused in on, at the beginning, that John is going to do two things this semester through this book. And he tells us his purpose in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, he basically says that I have written this this book for two reasons, that you may believe in Jesus, and by believing in him, you would have true and lasting life in his name. And what we learn is that through the book of John, John puts down seven miracles in the book that are performed by Jesus, and the first one starts right here in chapter 2. The very first miracle we see is the wedding at Cana. And I don't know about you... But I find that a little strange. Think with me. If you're John and you're writing this book, you would think, okay, this is one of the most significant men in the world. And I'm going to introduce these people to Jesus. You would think maybe he would start with like Jesus walking on water or raising someone from the dead. But John doesn't start that way. Why doesn't he start that way? 
Well, remember, miracles are signs that actually point to something deeper. And so if that is the case, this first miracle that John puts before us tonight is very significant. And it's placed first in his gospel for a reason. Tonight, John is wanting to communicate something to us about who Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. And he does that through this passage in John chapter 2. Three points tonight you can see on your outline. The problem, the solution, and lastly, we will look at the cost. Let's look at number one, the problem. Look at verse 3. The verse really sums up in this third verse what has gone wrong with this wedding. Mary, the mother of Jesus, approaches him and says, there is no more wine. What are we going to do? And to understand just how huge this is and how big a deal this really is, there are two things that we need to understand. First of all, in the ancient Near East, weddings were huge affairs. They were the cultural event in a particular town or village. Most of the time, almost always, they lasted up to a full week. It was a carnival-like atmosphere of celebration. Electric. I'm not sure it was as big as the Grove, but it was big. Lots of dancing. Lots of drinking. Lots of music. It was a huge celebration. And if you were to run out of wine, it was a very big deal. Because the groom and his family... Part of their responsibility was to provide wine and food for the entire week. And if you were to run out, it brought a tremendous amount of shame on the wedding couple and their family. In fact, early sources stated that the family could actually be sued for running out of wine. Think about that. You get the picture. It was a huge deal and a huge problem to run out of wine at the wedding. But secondly, we need to understand something else. Wine in the Bible is always associated with blessing and joy. And when we realize that wine is always connected to true and lasting and substantial joy and blessing, we understand that from cover to cover, that's what the Bible says about wine then we realize that it actually has a deeper meaning here. And what I mean by that is that when Mary tells Jesus we're out of wine, there's actually a second meaning. Yes, it brings great shame on the couple if they were to run out, but it's also a description here of humanity without Jesus. You see, the Bible assumes that without God at the center of your life, then you will have no lasting joy, no substantial blessing in your life, and you will never truly and deeply be satisfied. And we really know that to be true, don't we? I mean, think about it. Every party, every game day weekend, every career change or major change or change of friend groups, or change of class schedule, or whatever set of circumstances that we change in life, 
we think, okay, now I'm going to have lasting joy. This is it. I will finally be at peace. And you know what happens? The wine runs out. The joy runs out. I'll never forget a few years ago, I was reminded of this article in the New York newspaper, and a woman had written this article about celebrities and her experience with them before they had actually become famous. She had worked with them in a restaurant. They were bussing tables trying to make it big. Listen to what she says in this article. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked and they pushed, and the morning after each was made famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing that they were striving for, the thing that was going to make everything okay and provide them with personal fulfillment, it happened and nothing changed. They were still themselves. And then listen to this. It'll take your breath away. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish. You hear what she's saying? These celebrities thought that real lasting joy would be found when they made it when they finally got to the big time and became famous, and instead, when they got there, the joy ran out and they became intolerable human beings. And what I want us to see tonight in this first point is that the problem at the wedding is really our problem. Because oftentimes we think and we look everywhere else in the world and we think that is the thing, anywhere but Jesus, that is the thing that's going to fulfill me. And that's the thing that's going to make life work for me. And we get there, and the wine runs out. If I can just get in a relationship, God, please, I just need a relationship, a dating relationship, a potential mate. And God gives you that, and the wine runs out. A career change or getting it past the MCAT or into med school or getting that job of your dreams, I'll finally be happy. And you get there and the wine runs out. Game day weekend in the Grove, even the best game day weekend leaves you to some degree or another wondering if there's more. Wanting more. The best weekend with your friends leaves you disappointed in wanting more. In fact, when you're with your friends, oftentimes you're thinking, I wonder if I was with that group of people. If that would be the place where there is lasting joy. I wonder if that would be the place where I would finally feel filled up and be satisfied. You see, yes, the couple would experience shame if the wine ran out, but on a larger scale, this passage shows us that our real problem is really separation with God. It shows us that life without Jesus will never truly satisfy us 
Because living life without God at the center will always be a place where the joy runs out and the wine runs out. I love Augustine here. It's one of my favorite quotes. All human beings are born with a God-shaped vacuum in their heart and their souls are restless until they find rest in God. That's the first thing we see, the problem at the wedding. Secondly, the solution. Look at verses 4 through 11. Jesus actually responds pretty strangely. If you notice that verse there, it's pretty odd, and we'll get to that in a minute. But notice what Mary says. Mary says to the folks that are helping out at the wedding, she says, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And so Jesus grabs these six large jars, these purification and cleansing jars, and he fills them to the brim with wine. And then he tells the folks to take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast, think head waiter in your mind. Think of someone that's in charge of planning the party and making sure everything comes off smoothly. That's the master of the feast. Take it to him and let him taste the wine and see what he thinks. They take it to the master of the feast and he draws it out. Look at verse 10. He says to the groom, wait a minute. Most people save the good stuff till later when everyone's tipsy and really doesn't care how cheap the wine is. But you're saving the best stuff for now. What's happening? Jesus miraculously takes water and he turns it into wine. And here's what I want us to see. Look at the passage and you can miss it. But he doesn't do it in small fashion. This is not a small scale thing that Jesus does. He makes 120 gallons of wine. And it's not the cheap stuff. It's the choicest, best wine that you could ever taste. And in doing so, Jesus shows us who He is. In doing so, Jesus comes and He says, I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm the wine giver. Translation, I am the ultimate giver in joy. Translation, Jesus is saying, I'm the life of the party. Come to me and truly be satisfied because I am the one that you were made for. Two points of application that are connected. Number one, and I hope this is not offensive to anybody, and if it is, I'm sorry, we can talk. But I want you to notice something here Jesus, first of all, he is invited to this party and to this wedding celebration. He gets an invitation. And he goes and he seemingly fits right in. Where am I going with this? Well, let me say this. Christianity oftentimes over-spiritualizes Jesus and makes him the weird guy at the party in the corner that no one can relate to or talk to. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Look closely. We see that Jesus is not a social killjoy. 
He's a normal guy. Believe it or not, shockingly, 100% human. And he's someone that is tons of fun that you and I would, want have, would have wanted to hang out with. It's a small point, but I think it's worth noting. Secondly, another point of application. Jesus says, I am the life of the party. I am the ultimate joy giver. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is, do you really believe that? Honestly. <laughs> Friends, I believe most of you don't. You see, for the most part, I would say, you come to college and you say, I'm going to live I'm going to have fun and I'm going to put my faith on the back burner. I'm going to put Jesus on the back burner because Jesus is going to get in the way of me having fun and really experiencing life to the fullest. How many of you have said, my freshman and sophomore year, I really want to live. And Jesus is going to give, get in the way of that. Give me my four years and when I'm out of school, I'll settle down. I'll start going to church, I'll raise a family, I'll serve the church, and I'll get on and I'll be a good Christian from that point on. Why do we think that way? Here's why we think that way. Because we think that Jesus is the killer of happiness. We think Jesus is a drag. We think Jesus is the killer of joy. You know what Jesus says to all of us here in John chapter 2? If that's what you think of me, then you don't have a clue about who I am. Because that notion flies in the face of everything that I am. And he shows us that in John chapter 2. We've seen, secondly, first, the problem, the solution, and thirdly, the cost. Look at verse 4. Mary comes to Jesus and says, there is no more wine, and Jesus responds, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And at first glance, you're like, wait a minute, that sounds a little strange, plus it sounds like a very rude way to talk to your mother. But Jesus is not being rude. Hang with me. It's actually an expression of polite distance. Jesus' comment suggests that he's in another world. That he's thinking about something else as Mary asks him the question. That he's not really all there. And the question that begs from out of this is, what is Jesus thinking about? Jesus is thinking about his wedding. You know, that's what we all do, isn't it? That Susie and I just got back in early January. George Ham, former intern here at Ole Miss, got married. And as Susie and I were at that wedding, and at every wedding, it seems that we start reminiscing about our own. And you do the exact same thing. When you're at a wedding, your mind goes crazy and you start thinking, who will it be? When will it be? 
What kind of dress will I have? What will my bridesmaids wear? And on down the line. And sometimes you maybe go to a wedding and maybe they don't make you happy, they make you sad because you wonder if you'll ever get married. And it reminds you of your loneliness. Here's the point. Weddings affect us. And weddings are intended to affect us. Well, that's what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is at this wedding, and he's thinking about his wedding someday. See, when the Bible talks about the relationship between God and his people, the Bible uses this metaphor of marriage. Jesus is the bridegroom, and his people, which meaning all Christians in this room, are referred to as his bride. And so what that means is that every wedding you go to actually points to that wedding. Every groom and every bride point to the groom and the bride that will be a part of that wedding. And so Jesus is at this wedding and he's thinking about his wedding and what it's going to cost him to marry his bride. And do you know what he's thinking about when he thinks about his wedding? Death. Because in order for Jesus to marry his bride means that he's going to have to die for his bride. How do we know that? Well, look with me at verse 4. Mary, my hour has not yet come. That phrase there, my hour, if you do a study through that throughout the entire book of John, every time it's used, it refers to the appointed hour. When Jesus will go to a cross and be hung and crucified there and have the wrath of his Father poured out on him for the sins of the world. Why does Jesus have to go through that, you might ask? Well, because our sins, the Bible says, are that great. But again, why would he go through that? Well, simply put, so that he can marry you. Jesus gets death so that you can get life. I love Edmund Clowney. He's a commentator. And listen to this quote. It is so good. He says, Jesus sat amidst the joy of the wedding, sipping the cup of sorrow, so that you and I could sit among the sorrow of the world and sip the cup of joy. Friends, Jesus has shed His blood so that you could have the best wine. So that you could have joy that would last forever. So that you could have substantial blessing. So that you could experience satisfaction, not that's fleeting, but that will truly satisfy your soul. And here's the invitation. Will you come to Jesus tonight and experience true life? Because it's in Him that true life is found. Let's pray. Father.